นมูตสาบกวัวทัวรหัตโตสมมาสัมบุตสานมูตสาบกวัวทัวรหัตโตสมมาสัมบุตสานมูตสาบกวัวทัวรหัตโตสมมาสัมบุตสาพุทธังดัมมังสังขังกัมมะสามิ As usual, the community here is preparing to begin our two-month winter retreat. Each year, for January, February, we close down and put down the building projects and various other things that we spend a lot of time doing and. Don't take any guests, any visitors to the monastery, so that we can get ultimately quiet and withdraw our attention from outer activity and get more inner. As you would have heard me say many times before, the understanding we all have is that the outer activity. Of our lives can only really be truly appreciated, accurately appreciated, if inwardly we are clear. If we have inner clarity, well then, there's a chance that we'll perceive accurately what's going on in the outer world. And conversely, if we are inwardly confused and distracted and disturbed, then whatever's happening outwardly, even if it's wonderful, actually we end up misperceiving. And so. It's a, always an encouragement for all people, monastic and lay Buddhists alike, to put some time aside to do formal practice and get inner and get to know the inner terrain and how to move around and basically get to know ourselves for ourselves, not in accordance with what anybody else tells us, but how we see directly. I think last Sunday I was, or recently anyway, I was giving a talk about coming to know for ourselves the same way as you read a poem or you read a book or you go to visit a particular country. We have to have these experiences for ourselves before we can really say it's our experience. And and so likewise with reading our own hearts and and finding inner clarity and and confidence and contentment. We can only do it for ourselves. Nobody else can do it for us. And so, here in the monastery, we have the good fortune, for which we are very grateful, that uh, we're able to put external activity down for two months and and commit ourselves to inner inquiry. And uh, while we're saying that, I might mention how how much appreciation we have for the support that the lay community give us in this. Certainly, if you weren't supporting us, then we wouldn't be able to do this. So it's not something that we. Take for granted, but it is something that we do each year and beginning the year, looking forward to this time. But I suppose that's the case generally. Like a few, couple of weeks ago, we were all looking forward to Christmas and looking forward to the new year and what the new year is going to bring. And then, and then Kapow, that tidal wave hits and the whole world is disturbed. It's not just the Indian Ocean that. That suffers, but everybody suffers as a result by feeling the pain, sharing the pain, sharing the suffering that 
the, the terrible suffering that that people, so many people have experienced in Indonesia, probably the worst, but also the islands around the Southeast Asia and Thailand and Burma, India and Sri Lanka and all the way across to Africa. The tremendous suffering that has come to people at a time when people were hoping for a new year, a new beginning, wonderful things and hopes have been dashed and of course, there's something that uh, we're all faced with the question: Well, how do we handle this? How do we, how do we approach this? And one of the Dhammapada verses that I've been contemplating is a verse that says, "While in the midst of those who are troubled, to be freed from troubling is happiness indeed." Because uh, obviously, a lot of people are very troubled, a lot of people are very upset, and and what the Buddha said was. While in the midst of those who trouble, to be free from troubling, to be undisturbed by troubling, is happiness indeed. He also said to, to be amidst of those who are hating, to be free from hatred, is happiness indeed. While in the midst of those who are greedy, to be free from greed, is happiness indeed. These days I... I really take heart when I read these verses because it it reminds me what I already know to some degree, which is that actually it's up to me, it's up to each of us individually, how we relate to life. Everybody around us can be full of hatred, or everybody around us can be completely confused and disturbed, everybody around us can be completely possessed by greed, but we don't have to be defined by that. And I find that a very hopeful message. That is, that is a possibility. That is a potential. However, when I first came across these teachings, I thought it was a bit. Uh, well, I couldn't take it on really. To be, well, in the midst of those who trouble, to be free from troubling. In the midst of those who are anxious, to be free from anxiety is very different ways of translating these Pali words. While in the midst of those who are full of anxiety, be free from anxiety, is happiness indeed. It sort of seems a bit heartless, really, doesn't it? A bit kind of cold-hearted, boring Buddhists. They're all just sitting there being so precious all the time, not feeling anything. That was my first reaction to it. It took quite a few years of practice and, and, and pondering these verses. I haven't read many books, but I have read the Dhammapada, and I, I always keep coming across these verses over and over again. I find them a great inspiration and every time I look back at them, well not every time, but sometimes after having not looked at them for a few months or a few years, I come across a verse again and I read it and I see something different. And so these days when I read these verses, and particularly like in the current circumstances, to be in the midst of those who trouble, to see so many people so upset, to be free from troubling, is it, is it necessary? Yes, we can feel the sadness, that's appropriate, but... Is it necessary to be lost in despair? Because there are a lot of people lost in despair right now, a lot of people right around the world, a lot of people who are nowhere near the tidal wave, a lot of people who haven't lost their house or their livelihood or their children or their parents, but are completely lost in despair. And what happens when, when we get lost in despair, we... Well, what does happen? I think that's something we all need to consider together. What happens when we get lost in despair? 
we lose perspective, surely, don't we? We lose perspective when we get lost. There's one thing to feel despair, one thing to feel sadness. But it's another thing to get lost in sadness. When we get lost in sadness, then we feel this terrible burden of somehow it shouldn't be this way, or it's always going to be this way. It's another perception, that when we get lost in sadness, we get possessed by it, in other words, when the mind, the heart clings to the mood, then there's this feeling, it's always going to be this way. And it really feels like that. I mean, it really, really does feel like that. It's amazing how many times we have to go through these things. And when we come out of them, well, it's like greed. When you're possessed by greed, you absolutely, just absolutely have to have this thing. I mean, I've been practicing as a Buddhist monk for 30 years, practicing renunciation, no fun for 30 years. Well, a little bit, but not nothing seriously good fun. For 30 years, and you'd think that I would have given up by now, but I can still be fooled. I can see some new little gadget, <laughs> boys with their toys, just something with just a little bit more memory in it or whatever, and, and oh, <laughs> just another... I've got a one gigabyte, I think I told you last, last week, I've got this one gigabyte USB key that I'm so excited about. And, well, maybe I could have a two or a five or whatever. Well, hopefully I do have some perspective on it, but I know what it's like to really get lost in greed. I mean, we had a monk living here a while ago who got, he really wanted a dog. Now, you wouldn't believe the extent to which this monk went to try and get me convinced to have a dog. He, he was obsessed with it. And he's deaf now. You guess why? It wasn't to get a dog. <laughs> I can assure you. He wouldn't understand what I was talking about. He says, no, no, we've got to have a dog, Ajahn. I'll look after it. I'll look after it, he says. He's gone. This was just a few weeks ago. Now he's gone. Who'd be looking after his dog now? Tanapamano. <laughs> like everything else, it always falls on poor Tanapamano's plate. Poor Tanapamano. Everything ends up on his plate. Well, that monk was, I would say, was possessed by greed. And he really, I won't go into all the details, but he, he went to some serious lengths to try and persuade me to have a dog. Well, of course, he didn't need a dog, and I, I don't mind if other people have dogs, and I'm quite happy if you bring your dogs here to introduce them to me. I'd like to meet your dog. Well, what about anger? You can get possessed by anger, and when you get possessed by anger, it's horrible, isn't it? When you get possessed by anger, it really, it really feels like you've got to do something about it. That's what it feels like when you get possessed by anger. Remember that story I told you some, some months ago about that, I think it was the father of somebody anyway who told me, their father hated moles so much, and the moles, these cute little moles, I think moles are very sweet, but these cute little moles were upsetting his pretty lawn. And uh, the lawn was all nice and flat and mown, and all the dandelions and ugly flowers had been taken out of the lawn, and it was all nice and green and even. But these nasty, evil moles would come and dig molehills in his lawn. And this man got so angry, he just got possessed by his anger. Do you know what he did? He poured petrol down the molehills, and then leant over them and says, goodbye to you, and set fire to them. Well, it was nearly goodbye to him. And because of the big, and burnt his face, burnt all his eyebrows off, tear off. And what happens when we get possessed by anger, 
we lose our intelligence. We lose our capacity for seeing clearly. When we get possessed by these passions, whether it's by anger or whether it's by greed or whether it's by confusion, we have to understand this. This is what happens. We get possessed. In the same way we understand people who need psychiatric care get possessed, to a lesser degree we get possessed by the passions and we lose perspective. We have crazy thoughts and we have crazy feelings. Now if we prepare ourselves with this contemplation, well then when these things happen we've got a little bit of a greater possibility of not getting possessed by them, not getting caught up in them. We still feel them, that's what's being human. We're not talking about not feeling. And that was a great discovery when I eventually realized in this, these verses the Buddha was talking about to be in the midst of those who are troubled, to not be troubled is happiness indeed. He wasn't talking about not feeling or not being sensitive to other people's troubling or other people's anxiety, other people's fear or sadness or sorrow or their hatred for that matter. To feel it, to know it, but how to not get lost in it. That's the point. Now, the first thing is to actually take on the contemplation, to take on the, the thought, the idea that this is possible, that we can do something about our hearts, that we have this wonderful heart energy, This, when we see it in its beautiful, mature manifestation, you see people who are full of compassion, real, mature passion when it's manifested as it possibly can in its full human maturity is compassion, is wisdom, is love, is kindness. And when we see it, nothing is more likely to move us to tears of joy, of appreciation. When this human heart quality is manifesting in that way, as it can do. But you know, it's exactly the same heart energy that manifests as hatred and anger and greed. It's the same energy, it's the same heart energy, it's the same passion. It's just that it's being kidnapped by what, as Buddhists, we call the kilesas or the defilements, those, those distorted tendencies of mind, those inclinations of mind, those conditioned patterns of mind, that if we don't see them for what they are, if we don't recognize them as kilesas, as defilements, as pollutions, we don't see them clearly, then they kidnap the heart energy, and then they become impassioned. And then you have these horrible things that go on in the world, ghastly wars and rape and murder and abuse and this is the same wonderful heart energy just going out in a different direction the energy itself is just energy energy is neutral but if we haven't done the heart work of training our hearts and minds and bodies for that matter because it's very much to do with our bodies as well if we haven't done this work well the bad news is we do get fooled over and over again and we lose our capacity for appreciating life. The possibility that human beings have is this, this what well, the Buddha referred to as right mindfulness or a, a quality of appreciation that knows things as they are. And all of us who've engaged in any true spiritual practice for any length of time have experienced to some degree the beauty of this. To, to when the heart is is at least relatively free from the coarse defilements, the coarse chelases, and, and the body feels cool and the heart feels at peace and, and there's this wonderfully natural state of being with the way things are and a sense of 
the okayness of everything and the the capacity for appreciating to really that's naturally there when there is mindfulness when there is peace of heart then there is this most natural sense of appreciation that feels and understands this right appreciation is the capacity to be with empathetic relationship to be with the situation as it is to feel it as it is with all its energy but also to understand it and and so cultivating this right mindfulness or this right appreciation is something that human beings can do and if we do it, well then we feel that we know for ourselves the benefit and we find a confidence in the benefit, we find a strength in that experience for ourselves. This is something, again as the Buddha said over and over again, something to be verified for yourself. This is not something that's verified by somebody else. Somebody else might come along and tell you, yes you've done it right, but they might be mistaken. I remember reading a book when I was my first year as a monk and out in Thailand I had this one book and there was all these interviews with meditation students by their teacher and they're having all these enlightenment experiences and it was only five or six years later when I came to the West because I was very inspired by all this at the time but five or six years later when I came to the West I found out that several of these people had gone off and become drunks or even committed suicide after having their enlightenment experience verified by their teacher. Horajan Chai used to tell the story of this novice monk in Thailand who who was ordained as a summoner in a monastery and, and very serious about meditation and lots of hours of meditation and upright and alert and, and mindful in every way and really impressive, really impressive. But the teacher wasn't actually a meditation master. The teacher was a, a master of the scriptures. And so he didn't really know how to see what was going on with his novice disciple. Well, one day the novice disciple just suddenly started spouting forth all this profound wisdom. And he hadn't even read the books. This young man hadn't even studied the scriptures. And he was just coming out with all this profound, eloquent wisdom. And he thought he was enlightened. Well, then his teacher thought he was enlightened. So his teacher endorsed him. His teacher said, yeah, look, my enlightened disciple. The teacher was very pleased because he had an enlightened disciple until sadly he went out and found him hanging from a tree. Bad news. He wasn't enlightened at all. He was mad. And that's, that's tragic. Sometimes our teachers can tell us all sorts of things. Experts can tell us all sorts of things. But what the Buddha said was we need to know for ourselves in the silence and the contentment of our own hearts that we've got to know through our own hard work, our own hard spiritual grind, We've become so familiar with ourselves that we can read our own hearts and our own minds and verify for ourselves whether our experience is true or not. And uh, saying this capacity for living with a heart of appreciation is, is something that pervades all of our life. This is not just something that happens when we sit on our meditation cushion. It, it maybe is the first time that we have the experience of of stillness and contentment, but the more we practice, the more it permeates all aspects of our life. We can, you know, somebody who was here the other day was saying how they uh, they found themselves at a club in Manchester, and they really didn't want to be there. And uh, I guess they, if they really didn't, they wouldn't have gone there. But I guess they changed their mind once they got there, and they went there with somebody else. And 
everything about the place was disagreeable, so he decided he would meditate. Now, but to meditate, you don't have to necessarily get a zafu out and sit cross-legged on the floor. Meditation is a, is a, is a disposition of attention, an orientation of heart. That's the way we focus our minds. And he found it was very rewarding to be able to sit there in the midst of this club in Manchester and to be able to meditate. In other words, to let go of our trying and our struggling to make things be how we want them to be and to trust in the heart's capacity for mindfulness and to come to a feeling appreciation of this is how it is. And then we can relate, when we have that feeling appreciation of the situation, we can relate to ourselves with understanding and sensitivity and we can relate to other people with feeling and sensitivity. And this is the beauty of this practice, that if we are consistent with it, if we really make the, if we understand the consequences of getting lost in our greed and our aversion and our confusion, and we're motivated to keep making the effort to cultivate mindfulness, well, this kind of appreciation, as I said, starts to permeate all aspects of our life, our formal practice, our sitting, our being alone in solitude, but also our relationships and our social life, and our global responsibilities, global crises like the one we're faced with at the moment. We can be in the midst of those who are troubled, but there can be some element, some degree of equanimity. We don't have to be defined by what Sky News says about this situation. We can call it a tragedy if we want to, Or we can say, well, this is sad. I mean, to say it's a tragedy is true from one perspective, but from another perspective, it's not a tragedy. This is life. This is what happens if you live on this planet. Somebody was reminding me the other day, you know, down here, the middle of this planet is molten lava. Here we are, out on the surface, the outer crust, sitting on our solid oak floor, covered in organic Oro finish, in our nice pure cotton zafus with a nice temperature in the room with pleasant agreeable company and organic fragrant incense thinking that this is just lovely well this loveliness bad news this loveliness is is deluding personally I think it's quite a right to make things lovely I don't have a problem with making things lovely up to a certain point but if we get lost in loveliness well then we get lost we get deluded and another verse from the Dhammapada that I was speaking about yesterday to the Sri Lankan community, rather a hard-hitting, but nevertheless very true teaching the Buddha gave, he said, just as a flash flood can sweep away an entire sleeping village, so death can destroy those who pursue only the flowers of casual sensual pleasures. And sounds, wow, that's a bit hard-hitting, but listen to what the Buddha is saying. Death can destroy those who only seek the flowers of casual sensual pleasures. This lovely wooden floor and this organic fragrant incense that I'm so attached to, these are really only the casual concerns of life. These are the the flowers of casual sensual pleasures. These are things that make us comfortable. They've got their place, but they're superficial. This is not real happiness. This is not real security. All of these things can be taken away from us. And... The Buddha wasn't being an old sourpuss. He wasn't being a wet blanket. 
I'm sure the Buddha knew how to enjoy the pleasures of life as well. But what he was encouraging was to remember that you can't afford to get lost in it. We can't afford to get lost in these pleasures. Because if we get lost in these pleasures, well then the bad news is we get lost in the pain. We may not know it at the time when we're having everything agreeable, but when things become disagreeable, then we're troubled. We can't separate ourselves from the trouble. We can't let go of the sadness. We can't let go of the anger. We can't let go of the confusion. Well, if we do find ourselves at such a, a point, well, what we can do is pick it up with respect and appreciation for the possibility that Buddha pointed out and just say, well, what can I learn from this? So I think this was the point I was, I was making on the, the talk I gave on New Year's Eve, that whatever happens in 2005, we can always say, what can I learn from this? Whatever's happening. And then if we approach that, if we approach life with that attitude, well then we also have the attitude of a disciple of the Buddha. If we approach life with, well, how can I guarantee that I'm not going to suffer? How can I guarantee that I'm only going to have agreeable sights and agreeable sounds, smells, tastes, touches and mental impressions? How can I make sure that I only have pleasure? Well, we're setting ourselves up, unfortunately, for a very rude awakening, a very rude awakening. We might manage for a wee while, but as we all know, the thing I think that, that has hit us all most painfully is to see those people who'd saved up for years sunbathing themselves on the beach out on a paradise island suddenly to have it all trashed just within a few seconds all ripped away so to feel the sadness of it to feel the loss and to feel with the people the pain but to approach it with an interest also yes to respond with compassion and generosity and to give what help we can, but to find a way also of maintaining or cultivating some equanimity so that there's an understanding comes out of it. How can I approach this degree of disappointment, this degree of frustration, this degree of pain? How can I approach, how can I accept this pain in a way whereby I'm going to learn something? Learn something that will benefit me and will benefit others. So I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention.